Welcome to the NATO Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sajin Gohal, and in this episode, I speak with Paul Ash, the New Zealand Special Representative on Cyber and Digital, as well as the Christchurch Call and Cyber Coordinator in the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet. In our discussion, we talk about the Christchurch Call, which was established in the aftermath of the 2019 Christchurch terrorist attack in New Zealand. It represented a pioneering collaborative effort between governments, tech companies, and civil society to try and prevent terrorists and using social media to amplify their attacks. Paul Ash, a warm welcome to NATO Deep Dive. Thanks, Sajan. Um, great to be um, having the opportunity to talk with you and uh, have a conversation about the Christchurch call um, on, on this day. Well, very much looking forward to having that conversation. I think perhaps would be an interesting way to start this uh, podcast. Many ways to demonstrate the uh, interoperability of cultural ties was when we actually first met, which was in Australia in November of 2022 during US Thanksgiving. Uh, I think it's fair to say that there was a mutual appreciation society that was uh, formed when we both heard each other uh, give presentations at the Five Eyes conference. Your presentation really stood out for me because you spoke about not just your role, but you also spoke with huge amount of uh, passion in helping to formulate what became known as the Christchurch call. And what I found staggering is how few people actually know what it's about, despite the fact that it's had global ramifications and actually does uh, play a role throughout the world. Uh, I guess the starting point is for our listeners, what is the Christchurch call and how did you come uh, to, to be connected with it? Thanks, Sachin. Um, the Christchurch call uh, had its genesis in the terrorist attacks in Christchurch on March 15, 2019. And on that day, a, a terrorist walked in, a Friday, walked into two mosques at lunchtime as uh, the congregants were at prayer, uh, murdered 51 people um, in those two mosques, um, severely injured another uh, 48 people, uh, and live streamed the whole thing and was able to live stream um, an attack that went for 17 minutes on Facebook. And that, as soon as it was live streamed, was copied, pushed out to some of the recesses of um, the mainstream internet, uh, and then pushed back onto platforms quite relentlessly over the next. Um, 24 to 48 hours as um, major social media platforms uh, grappled with uh, identifying the content and taking it down. That continued thereafter um, for some time as um, platforms and governments started to think very, very carefully about the problem that it created and really struggled with the technology and the uh, linkages and networks to deal with it. And the harm that that caused um, the, the immediate proximate event um, is obvious, uh, a, a repugnant uh, terrorist act. The amplification of that online uh, went global, and it did that in a way that has not been seen on the internet before or since. Uh, the number of copies that had to be taken down in that first 24 hours, um, Facebook took down 1.5 million copies of the video in that time. Uh, over that first uh, 48 hours, the weekend of, after the attack, uh, YouTube uh, had someone trying to upload the video every second. And the scale of that was not something we'd seen before. And in a sense, it took an event that was tragic um, in Christchurch and amplified it globally. And 
the harm that we saw caused by that from people that had that come through their social media feeds um, inadvertently uh, found themselves watching it um, uh, really was a turning point for uh, governments and the tech sector and for many in civil society in trying to think about how to deal with that. Uh, I'm assuming, Sajan, you may well have seen it come through your feed um, uh, over that time. Um, you know, I've regularly bumped into people who've been um, subjected to what is a, a really traumatic event. Um, off the back of that, um, we had to think pretty carefully about how we responded. And I was working at the time um, in the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet as the Director of National um, Security Policy. I had a background in cyber policy and online policy. And we worked with our Prime Minister on what became the Christchurch call, which was an effort to work collaboratively with the tech sector and with other governments and with civil society on finding solutions to the problem. First, the presenting problem of live stream and of the technical means to, to deal with that, and then continuing to go a bit deeper into some of the underlying causes um, of the kind of actions we saw in Christchurch and actually subsequently saw uh, a number of copycat attempts over the, the next year or two. So that's the, that's the sort of genesis. Um, it's driven out of uh, an event that really was um, unprecedented in New Zealand. It was a complete, it was a turning point for us and something that um, was unprecedented globally in terms of its impact online. This, I'm just reflecting on some of the numbers, the statistics that you you identified as to the awful, horrific video that was being live streamed during the uh, assault that was being carried out uh, in Christchurch on on the mosques. Um, my understanding is that uh, when it was actually being streamed live, there were some under two hundred people that were actually watching the the carnage um as it was uh unfolding uh and the video was viewed around 4000 times before it was actually removed um the challenge though was the fact that maybe a limited number of people saw it live but afterwards effectively billions had access uh to it because that's how quickly things um spiral um, talk to me, Paul, about uh, the the challenges and the obstacles that you first faced when it came to uh, formulating what would become uh, the Christchurch call, and maybe the challenges of getting buy-in from social media companies. The numbers you've described um, are, are actually quite confronting when you think about how quickly it went from 200 viewers to, to 4,000 to um, millions and millions. And um, what we saw was some fairly careful planning by uh, the terrorist himself in terms of setting up a, a network and a grouping of uh, people that could be expected to take that content, um, pull it off the platforms it was on, and then start to push it back in again onto um, mainstream social media platforms. And um, that MO uh, was at the time, very, very successful. It took the major companies by surprise. Um, it was well enough organised that there were probably two or 300 people actively doing that. Uh, and they had, I think, developed a reasonably good understanding of the way uh, the algorithmic processes and the companies worked and how to actually get around those and ensure that the material could be promulgated widely and go viral very quickly. 
that required, I think, from our side that we thought um, in new ways about how to deal with this. And uh, to, to your question around the challenges we faced, the first one was what do the appropriate policy responses to something like this uh, look like? They ranged from um, regulatory responses, some of which um, were put in place um, by New Zealand and other countries after the attacks. Uh, we did that in slower time than some others. But that's a, you know, a function of governments that's quite important. Uh, right the way through to um, voluntary measures that we could perhaps implement more quickly with the tech firms, uh, drawing on their technical knowledge of the issues involved. And the first thing we ended up in was somewhat of a policy debate here in New Zealand about how to re respond to this issue. Uh, we engaged with a number of the tech firms. Um, they came reasonably quickly to want to have a conversation and to their credit, a number of them, once they had worked out what was happening, uh, also worked um, operationally um, to ensure that there was good collaboration um, across our government and a number of others in dealing with some of the um, immediate impacts and the law enforcement um, related parts of, of the content being distributed. We, sitting underneath that policy conundrum was that we found we had a range of tools that we could use, but none of them was perfectly suited for what we were grappling with. Um, we have an office of um, um, film, uh, video and literature classification here in New Zealand, um, known as the Classifications Office, and they were able to very quickly uh, classify the material as objectionable under New Zealand legislation uh, and ensure that it um, was prohibited um, to distribute, possess, um, copy the material. Uh, but that, um, and that was a very effective first line of defence, but it wasn't a long-term solution. It's actually dealing with the problem uh, after it's been created. So as we worked that one through, um, we talked at um, length with some of the firms involved. We talked with civil society groups. We talked with another, a number of other governments. And um, about two weeks after the event, I um, engaged with a, a number of other um, states, um, uh, particularly um, France and Germany, um, but all of our closest partners as well, uh, almost all of them, uh, either NATO members or um, uh, allies and partners and work through how we might pull together um, a, a, a set of commitments um, that we could work with the social media firms on um, to try and look at ways to solve the problem. The Christchurch call was the result of that. Um, our first conversations with the tech firms, I think, were probably more awkward than any of us would have liked. Uh, we weren't used to working with them in this way, and they weren't used to working with us. And uh, similarly with civil society groups who range from um, survivor and victims' rights groups um, right the way through to advocates for civil liberties and freedom of expression. And we've been very careful to continue to work with that spectrum. And, and I guess the key thing that we have discovered over that time is the importance of um, being even-handed and um, clear in what we're trying to achieve without necessarily being prescriptive about how we're going to get there. And in that way, building trust across the different participants and drawing on the strengths that governments can bring, industry can bring, and civil society can bring to a conversation about how to address some of these issues. So, so one of the key things you've identified, I think, is that question of building trust 
Um, and it was something that we worked very hard on. We were pleased to see folk from the firms uh, coming in the other direction, trying to do the same thing, um, and folk from civil society. And sitting at the core of that, I guess, was a sense that nobody um, wanted to see this sort of um, content on um, anybody's platforms. Um, you know, there are some exceptions to that, small, some small platforms that I don't think we'll ever be able to engage um, in a really constructive um, dialogue with because they prefer not to. Um, but there was a sense of common cause there and a need to try and find um, shared solutions. And it took a while to get there, but I think one of the great um, strengths of the Christchurch call is a, is a real commitment across the call community to keep working in that way. So in very much, it's a whole of society uh, approach um, that involves government, tech industry, and civil society groups um, as well. Um, you mentioned um, various countries that helped and, and collaborated. So one country I was curious about um, was France. Uh, France um, seemed to be very important in that. Is is there a reason why France became so engaged in helping to uh, work with New Zealand for the Christchurch call? France has been a really strong and steadfast partner um, from very early on in this process. Um, the, our Prime Minister um, at the time, Jacinda Ardern, um, was obviously in close contact with a number of her colleagues and peers um, in France and Germany, um, Canada, Australia, the UK, a whole range of different places. <coughs> the French government had reached out and said, as many others did, what can we do to help? And when we sat down with the team in Paris, as we did with a number of other um, teams, it became apparent they were hosting a Tech for Good Summit eight weeks after the attacks in Christchurch. And we looked at um, that timing and worked with France um, on the basis of their invitation uh, to tee up um, a meeting to launch the Christchurch call at that time. And that gave us a very, very short lead time to develop the 25 commitments in the Christchurch call. Uh, our French colleagues worked directly with us, as did colleagues from a number of other countries and from a number of tech firms. Um, and we um, first built in a really solid placeholder for civil society. So we worked very closely with the, the team in Paris uh, on developing the text. Uh, we stationed someone there um, in the lead up to the launch on 15 May 2019. And we ran a 24-7 operation between Wellington and Paris and between um, the various places that those of us who were negotiating the text were travelling to at the time. So I made my way up to the West Coast a couple of times during that period, um, working with tech firms, and we worked um, very closely virtually right the way across those different time zones to get the text done and ready by the 15th of May and ready for launch. Uh, and again, that was quite a process of building trust between the participants um, and developing the 25 commitments in the call uh, over that period of time. And France was integral to that process. We we worked um, very, very closely with them. We're, we're very appreciative of the role they've played. It's probably the closest working relationship we've had with um, our French colleagues for, for quite a long time. And it's been a really... Um, 
really a, um, extraordinary experience just working out the different capabilities and different ways we we think about these things and putting them together um, along with those of partners across a whole range of countries and tech firms and civil society groups to get the best outcome we can for uh, the objectives of the call around eliminating terrorists and violent extremist content online. Really does put it into perspective just how large and how mammoth-sized the challenge uh, in, it was in this way and the logistical dimensions that perhaps not always uh, fully appreciated. Where did you first find, okay, that this is working, that the Christchurch call is actually achieving the the objectives? Was that a specific moment where you thought, okay, all this hard work is actually paying off, we're going in the direction that one had envisaged, and now it's actually happening in practice? I think the first step was getting to the launch, um, and that eight weeks was a reasonably frenetic period of time. Um, but once we'd settled on the text of the call, which was completed um, just a few hours before the launch of the summit, um, we were able then to get it launched and focus in on some key work streams. The first of those that I think we really saw um, ourselves getting traction on quickly was that around crisis response and ensuring that uh, between the companies involved, um, the countries involved, um, we actually had new, new crisis response protocols that we were working together on developing and deploying both new technologies and new means of communicating. And over the course of that year, we saw several attempts at copycat attacks, uh, and we saw those new protocols in place and working. And perhaps the, you know, fast forwarding to last year and the really tragic um, attack in Buffalo, New York, that was live streamed, we saw the ability of the tech sector to identify and bring that content down uh, very, very quickly in a way that hadn't been possible three, three years previous to um, when the Christchurch attacks had happened. That, um, around the crisis response parts of the core, I think uh, is the place where we've seen um, measurable progress that we can um, evaluate um, and come up with a quantitative outcome. More broadly, um, we've seen real progress in working on re-gearing and relaunching uh, an entity called the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism. When Christchurch happened, it already existed, but it was very much a virtual organisation. It didn't have staff, didn't have its own identity. And so we worked through a process between May 2019 and September of that year when the call community met again uh, of working out how that could be reconstructed, how it could be resourced as an independent non-governmental organisation or not-for-profit, um, and how it could expand its work in the areas of research around violent extremism and terrorism online, um, its crisis response capabilities, uh, and its support uh, to smaller platforms. That relaunch was announced in September 2019, and COVID struck um, reasonably shortly thereafter, but through the pandemic period, uh, the chairs of the GIFCT first um, um, Facebook, as it was then, Microsoft, uh, and then Twitter, subsequently Google, have stewarded the development of that organisation and the growth of its capabilities, which has been a really important uh, step forward. I guess the last thing we would say um, in terms of a sense of measurable progress was actually that meeting in September 2019. 
uh, King Abdullah of Jordan uh, was kind enough uh, to allow New Zealand and France to um, co-chair uh, one of his Akapa process meetings that became a, a Christchurch core meeting at the UN. Uh, we had 31 more countries join the original uh, 17 at that meeting. Um, we had um, new tech firms. We had the announcement of the new protocols and the launch of the restructured GIFCT. And we really had, I think, momentum and liftoff at that point. We had some very frank conversations with civil society groups at that point as well, um, where they asked for a greater role in the work of the call. And um, I think we're pleasantly surprised when we reciprocated and said that makes good sense to us as well. Um, and we began building a call community at that time. And to me, I think that's one of the key achievements. We still have uh, now um, that sense of community. We're building a, a really coherent, um, engaged group across those three sectors that continues to work together on this problem. A coherent, engaged group, um, indeed. And um, I'm very glad that you also mentioned um, Jordan, because it's a country that We've worked very closely with uh, the Jordanian Armed Forces when it comes to uh, developing CVE uh, strategies um, as well. So they've been a very important ally uh, in this uh, yeah, issue. Um, if you could talk to me more, Paul, also about the role of algorithms, and in particular when it comes to the questions of regulation, oversight in the tech industry, or what is the best uh, strategy to pursue in in combating disinformation, radical content uh, on social media when it comes to those algorithms, um, which by which by design suggest related material to users that could actually lead to them uh, to get radicalized. In many ways, it's a it's almost a, a paradoxical challenge. Um, it really is a, a, a paradoxical challenge, and I guess the first thing. Um, to acknowledge is that when we stood up the Christchurch call, we were first looking at crisis response as a way of um, uh, limiting the impact of the the sorts of issues we saw in Christchurch. We were then, um, and this is embedded deeply in the commitments in the call, focused on looking at some of the uh, contributing causes, the things that um, led to that kind of activity, um, and ways that we could grapple with those that were consistent with international human rights law, uh, and a free, open and secure internet. Algorithmic amplification um, is one of those um, signature issues that we're um, having to, to really get our heads around and work um, on finding solutions to. And the first thing we had to do was work out exactly what type of algorithms we're talking about. There are three broad groupings here. Um, algorithmic processes that identify harmful content and one of the issues there is you know, false positives, false negatives. And there's work underway on that within the broader Christchurch core community and with those who work in this area. The other two areas go more to the point you're describing, which is radicalization. Uh, and they are search and the algorithmic processes that identify um, uh, particular types of content for a user and curate the, 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 the priority that's given to particular types of content. Uh, and we saw some particular challenges with that after some terrorist and violent extremist events, um, in particular, um, the um, the murder of um, schoolteacher Samuel Paty in Conflans saint honore uh, where one of the real challenges was that content being surfaced by both by 
search engines, but also by search functions um, that sat inside social media um, platforms and recommended um, the attacker uh, as someone to follow uh, for a number of users until um, firms got that under um, management and control. The other is uh, recommender algorithms, and um, those basically would say, if you're watching um, the NATO Deep podcast or listening to it, um, why don't you listen to this next and we'll then move you on to something else. And in some instances, there's, there's, there's evidence suggesting that that does lead to uh, amplification and um, increasingly harmful content. So you might go from something that is controversial but benign and um, fits normally within the area of freedom of expression uh, and find that certain users, because it's as much about the user as it is the algorithm, uh, end up um, uh, down a rabbit hole as it's sometimes described. And there's a couple of questions there. First, actually, an empirical understanding of what's happening in those um, situations. And second, um, thinking very carefully about the sorts of interventions that might um, positively um, ensure that use, the users' journeys don't take them into that radicalization uh, rabbit hole. And both of those need quite a bit of research. So one of our four work streams is exactly in this area. Uh, algorithmic outcomes, so understanding what the algorithms lead to, and positive interventions. That's been a very challenging area for governments and for tech firms alike to try and understand, and it's one where civil society's input is really important because they can provide insights um, and, you know, in a sense, uh, a multi-stakeholder approach is potentially um, a, a more stable and um, robust approach than any one of those three groups trying to do this on their own. Last year uh, in September, um, Prime Minister Ardern announced the launch of the Christchurch Initiative on Algorithmic Outcomes. This was a groundbreaking piece of work where Twitter, Microsoft and the United States and New Zealand governments working with uh, a, a not-for-profit called Open Mind um, are testing a proof of concept for um, technology technologies, privacy-enhancing technologies that would enable researchers to work with algorithmic processes and with um, user data in a way that would enable them uh, to research remotely in a trusted environment and draw some conclusions about what was happening. We're partway through that process at the moment. Um, we're in the first step of two phases where it's tested on individual platforms before it then looks at the way a user's interaction on one platform might lead them to another one and how algorithmic processes work in that environment. And to date, the, the first phase seems to be going well. We're um, not too far off um, being able to transition from phase one to phase two um, and looking uh, to build some further um, platforms into that work and grow the initiative over time. It's one of a number of similar initiatives. I would uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't note that a number of the firms that are in the Christchurch call have also established research access programs in recent times um, and are looking to find ways to um, increase the transparency around the way their algorithmic processes work. Uh, we see that as a positive outcome. Uh, it's one that, coming to my earlier point, does require a lot of trust um, to be built amongst the various partners working on it. It's one where there probably will need to be regulatory initiatives and indeed in things like the Digital Services Act and the EU, um, 
There are now regulatory frameworks for the um, assessment and audit uh, of risk and algorithmic processes. And the kinds of practical um, tools that are being built under the likes of the Initiative on Algorithmic Outcomes and in work we're seeing in some key universities at the moment um, should contribute to, to enabling those assessments to be carried out in a robust and safe way. But it is you know, one of the hardest um, pieces of the puzzle, um, both because it needs to be done in a way that doesn't um, um, necessarily get to the core of proprietary technologies in a way that would, would um, damage that particular interest, while also making sure that they're deployed safely. These are all really, really important uh, initiatives that are being uh, conducted. And I think it, it kind of illustrates and is a very important reminder about how technology um, evolves, that it doesn't stand still. Um, it's sophisticated and the utility of it is constantly um, developing. One dynamic that existed even during the time of the Christchurch attack, but seems to be developing as we speak, is uh, video gaming uh, chat groups uh, where people are communicating. They are disseminating information, even recruiting and and, and plotting. Um, places that perhaps prior to the pandemic and social media entities that were not necessarily looked at in the same way as your Facebooks, YouTubes, uh, Twitters, etc. How hard is it, Paul, to keep having buy-in from different companies that perhaps were not necessarily involved in the beginning of the Christchurch call, but are now actually relevant because of the technology that's um, involved and how does one keep adjusting those commitments so that uh, what was created continues to keep um, people safe? It's a great question, Sajjan. Um, and I think the leaders of the Christchurch call community do not want the call to be a, a static construct um, that looks at yesterday's problems and is not looking ahead. Um, and indeed, when leaders met last year, they they made the point that as we continue to in, innovate um, as societies, as the functionality of those online environments changes, um, call leaders really want today's young people to enjoy that, the benefits of a global internet without having to deal with um, or be confronted by violent extremist content or threats. Um, and that's very much about building a positive future online and ensuring that our, our thriving community contributes to that. Call leaders um, at their last summit um, agreed to launch a new stream of work on um, how we can both anticipate the adoption of new technologies and understand the challenges that they might pose um, and develop new strategies uh, to address them and prepare the members of the core community for, for um, managing the exploitation of those new systems by terrorist and violent extremist groups. There's a couple of elements in that. One of them is working directly um, with um, young people and children to try and understand their experiences and how we can help support them uh, and understand the issues that they might confront. The other is working with um, either new companies or new parts of the tech sector, and in particular um, gaming is one of those, um, to think about how we can support them um, as they um, build safety into their systems. And a, good, a couple of good examples of this would be um, the likes of Roblox, which joined the call uh, last year, um, very much targeted um, um, at, you know, gaining-based company, but working with a very young demographic 
and had already seen, for instance, um, game creators recreating the Christchurch attack online and putting it on their platform in the hope that people would play it. They've worked with the call community since joining um, on safety issues. We found them very, very responsive to that conversation. The same thing has happened with Microsoft, one of our earliest supporters of the call work, along with you know Google, Twitter, um, Amazon and Facebook. Um, their Minecraft product was something that was exploited, um, again, by some users in this way, and they've had to do very much the same things. So the gaming sector is one we're really um, uh, focused on as part of a, a, a new technology work stream because it really is a gateway for many young people into those new immersive environments. The gaming sector is where a bunch of um, the extended reality or entered reality environments will, will first be driven out of. Um, and it's one where it has been harder to build in safety tools today. But we haven't seen a shortage of interest from the companies that they get the problem. And again, a starting point for the cause that nobody really wants this content on their systems. Absolutely. You mentioned one of the, the key words to a lot of the discussion that we're having, which is safety. And um, in connection to that, uh, child safety online has become a real hot button uh, issue um, in, in Europe. And um, recently, French President uh, Emmanuel Macron um, helped uh, create or launch the uh, Children's Online uh, Protection Laboratory to improve safety for minors uh, across the world. And um, I, um, I gather that you actually were pivotal or you played a very important role to, to helping um, to, to establish that. Could you uh, talk more about that um, and and sort of how it, I guess it ties in as as a as a partner uh, concept to the Christchurch call. Thanks, Sajan. I think um, you know the call has developed a unique model for coordinating action and bringing together affected communities, civil society, and tech experts alongside governments um, on um, the, the key issues of online safety and. One of the key things there is by harnessing the distinct capabilities of each of those sectors and building a community we've, with, with a shared ambition, we've started to see results. Um, and the success of the call, I think, is reasonably well recognised, particularly amongst those participating in the work, such that last year a number of um, members of the community um, expressed some real interest in understanding how the call might work on some related issues. That created a little bit of attention for the call community because one of the things that helped us make progress in the core was keeping its scope very, very carefully focused on terrorist and violent extremist content online. So working with France, um, as they stood up the Children Online Protection Laboratory, um, they used a very similar model to the call and we were um, really supportive of them doing so through to the launch um, in November last year um, at the Paris Peace Forum of um, the laboratory initiative. Again, like the call, um, it brought together industry, civil society and governments. For the launch, I was um, very fortunate um, to be able to represent the New Zealand Prime Minister at that launch alongside um, President Macron, senior ministers, the presidents of Estonia and Argentina, and many of the key industry players also involved in the Christchurch call. And really, um, the, the online protection laboratory is um, uh, an effort to do something quite similar to the call work for um, keeping young people safe online, particularly from issues of cyberbullying or harassment. 
it's a useful case study, I think, in how a multi-stakeholder approach can uh, build effective coalitions to deal with a range of issues. And uh, one of the things that leaders looked at at their last call summit was the number of other issues that are presenting at the moment, ranging from harassment, abuse, and um, hatred online, issues particularly those affecting youth or gender-based um, issues online, um, and you know, um, toxic issues around disinformation. And the call itself will probably stay, I think, reasonably tightly focused on terrorist and violent extremist content online. But it does um, end up grappling with some issues that are common or some technological and collaboration issues that are common to all of those presenting problems, particularly that around uh, issues of um, data ethics, artificial intelligence, algorithmic um, use. Um, and so there's a work stream in the call to look at what we call the adjacent issues um, and how um, the models we've built in the call might best be used to support work in those areas. And the key there is not to duplicate where work is already underway and, and traveling well. And, and if I think about an area like child sexual exploitation online, there are already very, very strong collaborative mechanisms. The, the We Protect Global Alliance and the Technology Coalition uh, would be would be two real standouts in that area um, that are already working in that area. And uh, we would not want to stand up things that um, either duplicated or competed with those. We'd want to make sure they were supported. But there are some other new emergent areas where I think um, the call perhaps points towards a useful model that might be used. That's again uh, something that is going to be so important um, in the in the months and, and the years um, that, that, that as we progress. Uh, a final question, Paul. Uh, much of what we've discussed, it's been about terrorist groups. It's been about uh, entities that, in many ways, operate in the shadows. Um, when it comes to hostile state actors that are seeking to misuse social media, spread uh, disinformation. Is that a different challenge? Is that a different conversation when it comes to uh, the role of social media companies, governments, uh, civil society, or are there transferable uh, dynamics in relationship to this? It's a great question. Um, and I think when we've looked at the Christchurch call, we're very much focused in on terrorist and violent extremist groups. There are, um, there is, I would put it, connective tissue between that issue and um, the issue of exploitation of online platforms or online service providers by um, um, state-sponsored actors. Um, and, you know, traditionally, perhaps that activity has been in the more classical areas of cybersecurity where we've seen um, cyber campaigns, malware, et cetera, distributed. My sense is that increasingly um, we are starting to see some, some states um, using information in much the same way. And so um, moving beyond um, malware that would affect um, code or hardware, uh, we're seeing information that is designed um, to affect um, people and communities on the way they behave and the way they think about um, the institutions or constructs that their societies are, are built um, upon. That is a very, very challenging uh, presenting problem. And if I think about the Christchurch call, one of the key thresholds for participation by states in the Christchurch call is that they are committed to a free, open and secure internet and um, that all of their actions are consistent with international human rights law. 
um, in, in, in the work of the call. Um, that, I think, helps us differentiate, certainly, um, between the states that are able to do that. And you know, all governments are struggling to um, um, respond to and think about how they work with a changing online environment to a greater or lesser degree. But it, but it helps us work with the states that are constructively engaged in that process. Um, if I think across to the idea of state-sponsored campaigns, uh, I would probably put that in the category of adjacent issues. So um, these these are um, often campaigns that are well resourced. Um, they're based on um, good understanding of the way online platforms work and ways to exploit them. So in that sense, there are some similarities between the way some of the more um, advanced um, terrorist groups or violent extremist groups have exploited the internet. Where the connective tissue kicks in, I think, um, is probably in some aspects of the algorithmic amplification. That is that if you are using disinformation to affect societies, um, it, it's conceivable that that could spill over into violent extremist activity or inspire um, some users to violent extremism. But uh, my sense is that it probably needs to sit in a stack alongside um, the other presenting issues of terrorist and violent extremist content, child sexual exploitation and abuse, protection of youth online, um, and there are a range of others, uh, as a distinct um, um, stack of its own, with um, acknowledgement that both the community model we've built in the Christchurch call and some of the understanding of the way uh, algorithmic processes work, um, data ethics contributes, uh, artificial intelligence processes work, um, actually, um, enabling us to um, transfer some of those um, uh, lessons and the things we learn uh, as we go through the work into uh, that stack on disinformation. But it's 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 a very difficult issue to crack. If, if you think about the content issues and you think about this as a content uh, challenge, um, you have a spectrum at one end of which is child sexual exploitation material. Taxonomically, it's very easy to identify what that is um, with a small amount of um, material that is perhaps a little um, debatable. When you're in the terrorist and violent extremist content area, um, you have a, a much more gray area, um, but you still have content that is um, very clearly terrorist and violent extremist material and you have a designations process that covers much of that. If you're in disinformation, you're in an area where almost all of the material is gray. Um, and it is very, very difficult um, taxonomically um, to um, deal with it in the same way that you would those other two categories. And I think that makes this uh, a presenting issue of um, the use of the online environment by state actors uh, a really difficult one uh, to grapple with, particularly uh, for liberal democracies that are committed to um, rule of law, international human rights law, and trying to maintain a free, open and secure internet. But I think the call gives us gives us some models that might be useful in aspects of that. Absolutely. I think the call gives us many models that can be um, utilized. And I think you very amply de demonstrated the difference between uh, democracies that are based on the rule of law, accountability, transparency, and those that um, operate in a different way uh, and present different challenges. Um, well, Paul, let me um, thank you uh, again so much for spending time uh, on this podcast to talk about uh, the Christchurch call and so many of the different dynamics that are connected 
to the challenges of social media, the exploitation, the disinformation, the connections that ex- terrorist groups wish to um, to exploit and take advantage of. You've helped uh, demystify uh, a lot of this for our listeners, and I- I'm very grateful to you. Well, thanks so much for your time, Sajan. It's been a pleasure. pleasure. And if you have any questions about the call, um, just hop on the website and um, connect with us there, Christchurchcall.com. Okay, well, we'll, we'll embed that link um, into uh, the transcript uh, that we're doing. So thank you again, uh, Paul Ash. Thanks so much, Sajan. Thank you for listening to this episode of NATO Deep Dive, brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. My producers are Marcus Andriopoulos and Victoria Jones. For additional content, including full transcripts of each episode, please visit deepportal.hq.nato.int forward slash deep dive. Please note that the views, information, or opinions expressed in the NATO Deep Dive series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of NATO or DEEP.